presumably so it's start all by saying your name and of course. Uh, your titles, etc. Uh, yeah, so I'm Dr Nicole Robb. I'm a visiting lecturer at the University of Oxford in the Department of Physics, and I'm an assistant professor in the Warwick Medical School at the University of Warwick. Okay, that's lovely. And you were, before you went to, you went to Warwick in? I went to Warwick in July 2020. And before that you were here in Oxford? Before that I was um, in the Department of Physics working as a, a Royal Society Research Fellow and before that I was a PhD student in the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology also here at Oxford. Mm -hmm. and, and your main interest during this time has been well, you got, quickly got interested in viruses. What, what is it that appeals to you about viruses? Um, so I, I um, moved over from South Africa when I was 17 and I went to study microbiology at Imperial College London. And I quickly realised then that viruses were really fascinating and I specialised in that in my final year. Um, so um, when I was sort of towards the end of my degree, um, I was looking around for a PhD and I knew that I wanted to work on viruses um, and there was a great opportunity um, to do a DPhil um, in the Dunn School at Oxford and so I was really, really lucky um, to be offered a, a DPhil working with somebody called Professor Irvin Fodor and he's an influenza virologist. Um, so I spent four years with him which was a, a really super time. Um, and by the end of that, I, I had a pretty good grounding in molecular virology techniques. And I was absolutely sort of sold that that's what I was going to work on and that's what I was going to continue doing after that. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it's sort of slightly surprising that you ended up in a department of physics. How did that come about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, so I, I, I was looking around for, for a postdoc position and this really great opportunity came up um, to work with Professor Kelis Kafanidis in, in biophysics um, here at Oxford. And um, what sort of interested me about that was that they were working um, using something called single molecule techniques. Uh, and this, this was a, a relatively new field at the time and when I heard about it. And what it is is um, ways of studying, you know, rather than studying large um, complexes or large things um, like a cell all in one go, you, you isolate small parts of it, so you isolate proteins or molecules, and you study the behaviour of just those individually. Um, and that's, that's got a number of really great advantages. So if you, rather than looking at the averaged um, behaviour and the average properties of millions of molecules in one go, like you would just with sort of traditional biology or biochemistry techniques, you're able to see the individual behaviours of, of single molecules uh, that would otherwise sort of just be lost in the crowd. Um, so so um, I went over to, to, to his lab um, and started learning about you know, all of these sort of really fascinating techniques. And I, I realised pretty quickly that you know, not only were they really interesting on their own, but they're also a great way of studying small things, um, and in particular studying viruses, which is what, what I was interested in anyway. Can, can you just explain how you managed to get these molecules separated out from one another? Because normally they'd be part of a bigger structure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so, so normally what you'd want to do, if you, if you want to study a protein, for example, 
uh, which is sort of a like, small molecular machine within a cell, um, you would isolate that protein and you would try to ascertain its structure. So you would do something like X-ray crystallography or cryo-EM and you'd, you'd figure out the structure of that protein. And from that, you'd try and work backwards to figure out the protein's function. But techniques like that, you, you fix the protein, you take a sort of a static snapshot of it and, and that's really informative, especially if you can sort of take a series of static snapshots and put them together. But that's also quite tricky to do. Um, and it doesn't give you any like dynamic information. It doesn't show the protein in the process of binding to whatever its ligand is. It doesn't, it doesn't show it actually working. And what single molecule techniques do is they allow you to isolate that protein and look at it with a microscope in its near-native state. So you can add its ligand, you can add nucleotides to make it copy DNA, for example. And you can actually watch in real time as it's doing the work that it would normally do. So you can get a lot of kinetic, dynamic information that would otherwise be lacking. And how do you do that? <laughs> you, you use a microscope. Um, so, so you use a, a sort of a, a customised microscope that's um, designed to, to, to look at just small, single molecules. Um, and th there's two main ways of doing that. So the, the first way is you take your protein of interest, um, you label it with a dye so that it can be seen on the microscope, and then you dilute it down um, to peak molar concentration. So this is very, very, very dilute. And then you flow each, um, you sort of flow your solution through the microscope. And, and because the proteins are so diluted, you see one at a time as they flow past your detector. And the dye? The and the dye, the dye is, is a fluorescent dye, so, so it gives off light when, when it goes past your detector and you can see that light and you can infer things about what the protein is doing from the light that it gives out. Um, the, the other way that, that um, the other thing that you can do is you can take a protein of interest, label it and then stick it onto a surface, so you could stick it onto the surface of a glass slide and you use a microscope that then scans around the glass slide but only looks at a very, very small area at a time. So it only picks up you know, one or two molecules in one go and you watch them that way. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you began to use the same technique to look at viruses. What, yeah. what particular questions were you... Well, were you just developing the technique or did you have questions? Yes, yeah, so, 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 so we realised that this... This would, you know, be something that's potentially really um, great to apply to viruses, um, and as far as we knew at the time, no one had ever tried to study flu or any flu proteins in this way. So because that was sort of what I'd worked on before, and because we had collaborators, which was my previous supervisor um, in the Dunn School, this was the obvious you know, thing thing to, to to try. So. Um, what we actually did in the end was we managed to carry out the first single molecule studies on influenza virus. Um, so we, we concentrated on a protein of the virus called the polymerase, which is the protein that copies the virus genome and makes more copies, so you make more viruses. And we isolated the polymerase and we then showed how it bound to the viral genome and how it changed the shape of the viral genome when it bound to it um, in order to copy it. Um, so, so that was a pretty exciting time. Um, it was a, you know, a really nice um, collaborative project with lots of people involved and um, really exciting because it, we were showing things that, that hadn't been seen before. 
Um, so that would normally be happening inside the infected cell. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, in this case, you, you just you take that protein out of the, the cell, out of the virus. Um, we we stuck it down and we then get, gave it a fluorescent version of the genome to bind to, so you could see the binding. And then by looking at the changes in 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 the signals that you get off from the different dyes, um, so we use something called FRET, where um, which is stands stands for something complicated, but um, it, it, what it does is it, it gives you a measurement of how close or far away two dyes are from each other. So if you have two dyes on your you know, on your protein and on your RNA, and the, the RNA is in very close contact with the protein, then um, you get a very high signal, and if it's further away, you get a low signal. So, And then you can actually watch that sing- signal changing over time. So, so that's the technique that we used. Um, yeah. So, what does that? Where does that get us up to in terms of time? <laughs> you were uh, so, so I worked. I worked um, as a postdoc with Achilles um, from two thousand and eleven until two thousand and seventeen. Um, so, we established the single molecule system for flu. I had two career breaks during that time, so I had my two eldest daughters during that time as well. Um, and then that brought me to the, this is sort of the time in my life where I was thinking about what to do next. Um, so I applied to the Royal Society for a research fellowship, um, which I got and started in 2017. So this was my first kind of independent funding to start my own group. I got my first PhD students. Um, and yeah, so, so um, started sort of setting up my own lab and that's something that sort of reflects all of the things that interest me. So we're an interdisciplinary group of people from all different kind of backgrounds, ranging from pure physicists to biologists and a few things in between. And um, I thought that what I'd like to do is use these amazing techniques that I'd learnt, these biophysical techniques, and apply them to study viruses, um, to study how viruses replicate themselves, um, and also come up with ways to detect viruses. So from around 2015 or so, um, we started to think about using fluorescence, which is the way that we label what we're interested in, and microscopy as novel ways to detect viruses. Um, and to diagnose them in samples as well. Is diagnosing viruses difficult? Well, I mean, yes, because they are small. So, so um, traditionally, virus diagnosis, I mean, it started with culturing virus in, in cells in a lab, which is extremely hit and miss. So, um, you know, in order to grow up the virus, you have to have it in the right conditions, in the right cells, you have to wait about a week to know if it's worked, um, and then and then you need to, another way of sort of identifying that it's that specific virus. So um, traditionally, people turn to electron microscopy to do that. So you try to image what you've grown, and you use sort of what it looks like to try and classify what it is. So you can see there's lots of problems with that. It 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 does doesn't happen in any time frame that's useful. Sort of clinically, because you know someone might come in with an infection, 
that's very serious and then they, they can't wait for an entire week to know what they've got. Um, and also, so technically it's got a lot of challenges as well and it's not standardised, so um, it is pretty hit and miss. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the history of, of diagnosis. Of course, we have much sort of modern molecular techniques now, uh, which obviously thanks to COVID, lots of people, everyone is very familiar with these. Um, so um, there's PCR or RT-PCR where you amplify up small fragments of the virus genome, which is the kind of gold standard for viral diagnostics um, and has really sort of come to the forefront during COVID pandemic. Um, which is very, very accurate, um, but also has some downsides. So it's not particularly timely. You know, it takes several hours. Um, you, you need a lab to do it. So you need to get your sample into the lab and you need to extract that viral RNA, the virus genome, in order to carry out the assay. Um, so something else that's sort of happened over the last couple of years with COVID is of course um, we've turned to other types of tests that can be done at point of care or can be done at home which is lateral flow assays um, so, so they're nothing new but they've never been sort of rolled out on this kind of scale before um, yeah so, so um, that sort of at the start of the pandemic um, and even today is sort of what we have in our arsenal for, for diagnostics so what I, did, I did interrupt you to ask about um, whether it was difficult to diagnose viruses, but you were mm -hmm. just telling me about the the, um, the the work that you were doing in your lab when you first. Yeah, I mean, so so when we first started thinking about this, I mean, we could see the problems that they were um, with the technology that was available, and we realised that what we have is a way that you can see single viruses because um, this is what we've been doing and um, so if you can do that then you don't need to go and take a sample and try to amplify that sample up to detect it um, it's very sensitive so you can see just a few particles um, you don't have to purify anything else so so we thought this could be very sensitive and this could be very fast um, so I mean, it's something that happened over over quite a few years but we started First, we're thinking about how, how we can visualise these viruses in a, in a clinical sample. So how do you label them so you can see them? Um, we explored lots of different ways of doing that. Um, and so th the, the way that um, we discovered something that was pretty exciting, which was that you can use um, short DNAs, so very short labels that are negatively charged, um, and remember that the surface of a virus is negatively charged as well. And you can use a positively charged solution to bring those things together. Um, so we call this cation-mediated labelling. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, <laughs> um, but um, what, what we discovered was a really, really quick way of adding a fluorescent label to any virus in a sample, uh, much quicker than anything else that's known out there. Um, you know, it's instantaneous, you add your labelling solution and you put your sample onto a microscope and you can see it straight away. So the little bit um, of DNA matches 
the the genome of the no, it doesn't. No, it's just a charge basis actually. Oh, so that yeah. the bit of yeah, that bit of DNA, um, it has. I mean, it has to have some features about it. It has to be a certain length and things just to sort of maintain enough negative charge. Um, but it's it's a universal label. So it, it you add it and it can label any pathogen in the sample. Well, so why is that useful if you, if you want to know precisely which virus you've got? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I'll, I'll come to that. Right. right. <laughs> so, so that was the first thing that, that, that we discovered. And you're absolutely right. Um, so, so what do you do with something? You've got a really good universal label for, for a pathogen, but um, so how is that useful in a diagnostic setting? So, so we actually spent the, so the year or two before the COVID pandemic, um, trying to turn that into a diagnostic assay. We were focused on flu, and we were thinking of um, thinking of ways that we could do a, a, a quick screen for seasonal flu strains that were going around. Um, and what we realised is that um, if you label your virus in, in a sample, you look at it on a microscope, you take a quick picture or two, um, by eye, when you look at those pictures, they're really, really hard to tell apart. So you can have two different viruses. You know, they're going to look the same by eye. Um, but if you do something clever, so if you take a computer, you take um, some artificial intelligence neural network, what you can do is you can show that network the pictures you've got of your two viruses. It'll learn the features that are specific to each virus family that's in there. And then you go back and you show it a third picture of an unknown virus. It will tell you which one it is. So that's another whole area of, of research, isn't it? Artificial yep. intelligence. Absolutely. So yeah. Did that involve bringing so, so, in more collaborators? So um, this this was a complete stroke of luck. I had a, a first a summer student. Uh, his name is is Nicholas Shilas. So first a summer student, and he then stayed on and did his master's project with me in the lab. And he then stayed on to do his DPhil as well. And he was the one who his his master's project was basically bringing this about. And um, he's, he's a very he's a brilliant scientist. And um, he managed to, he, he, he designed the neural network and showed that it worked in the first instance. Um, so, so we reached... So this is a, I mean, neural networks, I think. It's, Sorry. It's something that's... Um, um, but it's 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 essentially created in a computer. I mean, you it is. It, yes. It's a computer algorithm yes, that yes. you train to recognise images or features of images. So he's a coding quiz. Absolutely. Yes. yes. So, so he yes. did physics undergrad at Oxford, and uh, he knows all about maths and coding, and, and he, he came up with this. Um, so so, I mean, we we thought it was pretty exciting, um, and by the end of. So 2019, we we had shown that it worked pretty well on flu, and we could actually differentiate flu strains, even quite closely related flu strains, using this technique. Um, we'd spoken to Oxford University Innovation, which is the technology transfer um, company for the university, about you know, um, protecting intellectual property. Um, thinking that you know, perhaps somebody could find it useful 
well, you know, um, someone might want to license it and turn it into a diagnostic test one day, something like that. Um, and that's pretty much where we were when, of course, COVID started. So that's a question I'm asking everybody. Yeah. When did COVID start for you? When did you kind so, of notice there was something yeah. happening and realise that you could get involved? Um, so, so for me, it was almost it was right at the beginning. So I think, so being a virologist, I was interested in this kind of thing. And actually, what I've been doing is I, um, I've been teaching pandemics and... Um, um, how viruses cause pandemics um, to the medical students for quite a few years until this point. So, so it was something that has always interested me and that I knew a bit about. So, um, when you know when the first kind of reports were coming out of some strange unknown pneumonia in in, in China, I I did I did read about it and I knew about it. Uh, I had absolutely no idea what was coming, of course. But um, it was sort of on my radar a bit. Um, I then got completely distracted because I had my third child in January 2020. <laughs> so, so she was she, um, her, she was born on the third of January. So her birth sort of coincides exactly with the start of the pandemic. Um, so I did I did spend most of January thinking about other things, um, but still keeping an eye on it and and. Obviously, um, I think by the end of January, it was already quite clear that this was or had the potential to be something quite serious. Um, so we were already thinking then of you know, our technology and what we could do and, and perhaps trying to see if it was something that worked for whatever this new virus was. So yeah, that's it, we didn't even know. Um, yeah, so um, what followed after that was a completely mad time. <laughs> <laughs> where um, I, I sort of gave up any thoughts of maternity leave and um, we we realised that, I mean, by the time the first lockdown happened, which was towards the end of March, we, we already realised that this was something that could be useful and could work. And um, how we knew that was that we um, had a, a fantastic collaborator at the Purbright Institute uh, who gave us some um, coronavirus samples. So this wasn't COVID, this wasn't SARS-CoV-2, but it was an avian coronavirus. So the fit, um, that's relatively safe to handle and use in the lab. So, so the first thing that we wanted to check was whether we could actually label an image a coronavirus. We hadn't even tried that before. So, so by then we'd done those experiments and we realized that we could. Um, so, so we knew that there was sort of something, some potential there. Um, I had I mean, this, my small team of people basically dropped what they were doing to try and focus on this. Um, and Achilles was, was really involved in it as well. And then um, what happened was there was the lockdown and basically the physics department shut completely. So, so we were in this really strange situation where I think we were pretty much the only group in physics that was still working, we were still coming in and doing experiments. Um, but we also realised quite quickly that um, you know, we were quite limited with what we could actually do in the department and we needed to try clinical samples and, and um, to see if there was any, you know, if it was going to work with those. Um, so again, another, we had another fantastic bunch of collaborators at the John Radcliffe. Um, so this is a 
the groups that run the clinical and the research diagnostic labs there are Derek Crook, Derek Crook yes. and Nicole Stoyser and her team as well. And they, they very, very kindly agreed that we could take one of our microscopes to the JR, set it up in their research laboratory and, and test COVID samples that were coming into the hospital. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that was um, a really exciting time because you know, um, not many people were working, but we were sort of working 24-7. <laughs> and and we, we tried it on clinical samples um, of SARS-CoV-2 and actually it worked, um, which was, yeah, really exciting. Um, and yeah, and then in between all of that, I started a new job. <laughs> so <laughs> I then <laughs> moved to Warwick, um, yeah, moved the lab to Warwick, although um, most of the, the team still stayed here in Oxford, was still working in Oxford at the time. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a bit of a hectic, hectic time, but also very exciting. Um, and by, by about October time, so we had um, good enough results that we, we wrote it up into a, a, a paper, put it online, um, and it actually it got quite a lot of attention at the time uh, from sort of press and things. So at that point, we started to think that you know, maybe there's something in here that we could actually make something that's helpful for people. Um, so that's when we started pursuing the idea of, of trying to have a, a spin-out company to actually try and take the technology forward from then, yeah. So the, the goal would be to be able to have this set up as a kind of bedside Yeah, um, it's device. so so if I kind of explain what it is, mm. um, so we have this way of instantaneously labelling a pathogen in a sample um, and then you take that bit of labelled sample, you put it on a microscope, take some pictures and then those pictures just get beamed to the computer and the computer does the rest, the computer will have a quick look. Um, and so the advantages of it are that you can go straight from your swab sample, you don't need to do any sort of preparation, you just add a bit of a label solution and you can have your result in a minute. So, so it's, it's significantly quicker than, than it pretty much anything else out there um, and also but of course um, this is still happening in a lab right so even though we have relatively simple equipment compared to you know, PCR machines and extraction hoods and all of that um, it was still something that's lab based carried out by somebody who knows how to operate a microscope for example and so, so the and, and you are dealing with live virus which presumably brings its own constraints Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so one of the, the things that we did in, right in the beginning when we were setting up the collaboration at the JR um, was think about sort of how to, how to go about this. Um, because what normally happens is that a swab sample will come into the lab and it will be inactivated immediately, either by heating it or a chemical inactivation step, because what you want is just the RNA out of the virus for PCR. Um, in our case, what we want is not just the RNA, we want to see the actual virus particle. Uh, so those inactivation methods are no good for us. Um, so, so what we needed to do was come up with a new way of inactivating the virus that still left the virus particles intact, 
uh, but obviously rendered the sample safe to handle because you don't want to be doing all of this in a CL3, so it's a containment level 3 lab. Um, so again, so grateful to so many great people at the time. Um, we had some, some a group in um, the University of Montpellier in France who actually had a high containment um, facility and a microscope within it and they agreed to test an activation method for us. So um, we did that and we actually came up with a, a method of fixing the virus sample so that it still maintained the virus particles within, within it but they were completely non-infectious. Um, we then needed to convince the University Safety Office that this is a good idea and um, which they did um, did agree to and, and then we were allowed to sort of carry on with, with the clinical samples. Uh, so there was a whole a huge team effort from so many different people. Um, I should also mention that we so we needed a microscope to take to the to the, the hospital to work with and because the biochemistry department was shut down because of lockdown they actually had a microscope in the imaging facility that wasn't used so they agreed that we could take that microscope to the JR. So there are, there are absolutely there's so, so many people that all, all came together to, to, to make that happen. Um, yeah so um, we, we had a method where the samples would come in and then you just add a, a fixation reagent and then they were safe to use in a lower containment laboratory. It didn't need to be done in the high containment laboratory. Um, however, you don't need to do that if you just um, have the sample and just contain it in a little capsule and it just gets imaged within that, which is something that we do now. So, so, so the purpose of the, the spin-out company is to try to move RSA from something that's done at a lab bench to something that can be done anywhere and hopefully sort of give you a quick accurate result in just a minute. So have you, you haven't actually tested it in a, in a clinical setting e even in with the lab based one, I mean you've, yeah. you've tested it to show that it works yeah. but you haven't had doctors actually using this method? No, so the, this is something that the company has now taken forward. Right. Yeah. We haven't done that. So what what stage is the company? When when was the company set up and where so, is it got to? So we had the idea back at the end of um, twenty twenty. It took us a year to raise the funding um, for it. So so the company is officially incorporated at the end of twenty twenty one. As what's it called? Um, it's called OxDX. Um, That's how you pronounce it. I just wanted to know. <laughs> <No, no. laughs> Oxford Diagnostics, OxDX for short. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, so it's only been yeah, um, a short time, but we've already managed to actually build up a really great team um, of people. And what's your role within the company? Uh, so I'm founder director, and I work as a consultant as well. Mm -hmm. And and you do that alongside your. Work at Warwick yes. and your, your <laughs> Yes, so it's been a very busy few three years. Hats. Three hats and a mum. <laughs> and a mum, three, yes. I have, yeah, I have three Four children hats. that are nine, six, and two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so not a lot of free time, but um, yeah, and I, I guess it, it, it's um, an exciting time to be involved in things like that. And um, 
you know, just motivated by the fact that hopefully one day we can come up with sort of better alternatives for testing that give quicker results um, you know, aren't, aren't linked to expensive labs so it's something that could potentially be useful in other settings where that kind of facility isn't available. Is the microscope not expensive? So the microscope um, is the lab-based microscope, of course, is expensive, but you don't need that. You, you, you can use a much cheaper and simpler alternative as well. Mm. So what hurdles are in front of you now before you get to the point where you have a clinically? I've learned a lot about um, spin-outs in the last few years. What's different about working for, what well, you know, essentially it's the commercial yeah. sector as yeah, opposed it, to it, an academic. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire because I knew absolutely nothing about it um, in the beginning. But luckily actually Oxford as a university are a fantastic support for that kind of thing. So they, not only have they got OUI who sort of helped us every step of the way, but um, they've also helped us with sort of internal funding for pre-translational work, that kind of thing as well. So. Um, we haven't at all been alone. It's been, we've been helped a lot, very grateful you know, to the university and everyone that has helped us. Um, so I think the, the, the life of a spin-out is a continuous sort of cycle of, of raising funding to reach the next stage. Um, so uh, that will be the, the next hurdle that we'll need to cross. Um, and do you need to demonstrate something else absolutely and and yeah. and then you know we're, we're going we're progressing down the road to actually make a, a you know commercially available product so so there's all sorts of hurdles along the way and um, we need to show that our product works and it works well we'll need to get regulatory approval for it um do you, I mean, have you got a, a factory or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we do we, we've got um some some um so commercial company space in the Wood Centre for Innovation in Hiddington. Oh, yes, right, yes, I did, yeah. I did spot that, yes. Okay. Yeah, um, and um, you know, various kind of business partners and stuff as well, um, where we do some aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this, yes, yeah, so this includes both the the labelling, the microscopy, and the AI aspect. Yes, it does. Of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that so, so all three. Also, still under development. Is it all? Uh, yeah, I mean, mm. yeah. I don't think we're anywhere. You know, we're not near uh, the the final complete product. So, so we still definitely have an R and D side, and yeah, you know, my lab is still working on on aspects of this as well, um, from an academic interest point of view. When you um, say my lab, yes. Do you mean? Do you still have a lab here? Is so I, I still have. Is um, it all one lab? I, the Warwick and Oxford at the same it, time. We're all one lab. Yes. Um, we we have joint meetings and things. But I have uh, two PhD students and a postdoc and two master students who are based at Oxford still, um, as well as the people that are based primarily at, at Warwick now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yes, going to, it's changing tack slightly now. Um, how did working in lockdown impact on what you were able to do? Quite apart from the fact that you were supposed to be on maternity leave. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so so I think you know, in some ways we were really lucky that we actually could carry on working. I, I really feel for all the people that 
you know, the labs just got shut down and the, the you know, PhD students and stuff that couldn't access the labs and couldn't do the work. So at least we were able to keep going. Um, and yeah, that was really good. It, obviously, um, sort of personally, I think a challenging time for everybody trying to work under those con conditions and you know, trying to really get things done as quickly as possible, that kind of thing. But yeah, they're, they're all they're all great. You know, the whole the whole team, um, Achilles and everyone else, um, all the students, people working in the lab, were fantastic. And I think there was a real kind of a feeling of sort of collaboration and working together and people helping each other out mm. and sort of trying to do something for greater good mm. as well that, that came out of it. That's interesting. A lot of people have, have said that. Yeah. I mean, do you, did you feel that that was distinctively different from the way academic work normally happens? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so I, I think I, I've been at Oxford a long time before that and there was always a, a good collaboration, you know, people networked and people worked together and stuff, but nothing on the scale of what happened due to COVID. I think that it, there was really a sense of everybody coming together and nobody was sort of out to do it to because they wanted to publish a paper or anything like that. Everyone was doing it because it needed to be done and trying, you know, helping each other out, providing samples to each other. You know, for us, people helping us by learning us a microscope, things like that. Um, so, so definitely that, that's true that that happened. And yeah. do you think any of that will survive in the post-pandemic era? I hope so. And it seemed I, like it was a good way to get things done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I suppose what it's shown is that that can happen and these huge sort of interdisciplinary efforts to solve problems that COVID has, has you know, thrown up. I, I, I don't think those will disappear anytime soon. And I think that, in fact, you know, there's sort of funding being poured into it and things for groups to work together and try and solve problems that are still not gone away, right? Things like long COVID, things like that, that still need to be to be worked on and researched and solved. So so I think for you know personal people personally for for researchers, they've seen how how quickly things can work if everyone comes together and is focused on one goal. So I think that will change how people kind of work together and think mm -hmm. as well. You, you did mention in passing that you're involved in teaching. So how was that impacted by... Um, well, I mean, the, the, so, so we, we all learned very quickly how to do teaching online, um, which is not nearly as fun as teaching in person. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was just, just how it had to be, right? It's just something that we had to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and did you, again, this is just something I'm asking everybody, did you, were you personally, did you personally feel threatened by the possibility of catching the infection or, or that people around you might do so people close to you? I, I think before there was a vaccine, definitely I was, I was scared for you know, my parents. We didn't see them at all. And, Are they and still the, in South Africa? No, they're not. They, they live not far from us and normally I they help me out massively with looking after my, my children. I really rely on them for a lot of help and um was too scared to, to see them, especially because I was going and working in the JR. So 
um, you know, actually the, the diagnostic laboratories in the JR are on the seventh floor, so you have to either go in the lift or walk up seven flights of stairs. So there were definitely times where I felt pretty vulnerable doing that. Um, um, so, so didn't see them, but it was also just a, you know, a time when it would have been absolutely great to have some extra support with children and um, and stuff. So, so yes, I, I did. I think that vaccine coming along really changed that. So as soon as um, you know, we were vaccinated, that I was much more relaxed about it. But definitely for that first year, I was worried about. It. I was worried that the children would get it and. Um, yeah. And um, do you, so? Do you think the fact that you? I mean, obviously it was a worrying time. But do you think the fact that you were working on a problem that could potentially help help to support your own well-being? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No. It. 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 it so it wasn't a very easy time. But actually, thinking that you might be doing something that even a very tiny thing to, to try and help um, yeah, that that's kind of what drives you to do it so yeah definitely mm-hmm. um, what sort of hours were you doing you said 24 7 yeah at one stage we were doing very very long hours um, you know when it went without stopping basically um, that the hold of the whole of twenty twenty is pretty much a blur. I don't remember that much of it. But but then oh no no. Also didn't yeah. It was a small baby, not the most sleep. Um, so I I often just work at night. You know, once once the kids are in bed and stuff, work work through the night. Um, but. I mean, I'm not the only one who went through that. In fact, I'm sure people went through a lot worse than I did. Uh, I think, I think, yeah. For people sort of on the front line of it, this you know scientists working on the vaccine and stuff, I can't even imagine what they've been through as well. So, yeah. So, again, this is a standard question: ha- Has the work raised new questions that you're interested in exploring in the future? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I think we have a general interest in improving diagnostics and trying to come up with better ways and quicker ways of doing it and you know what I've spoken about today isn't the only thing that we have on we've got other projects in the lab um, and I think if anything it's just sort of cemented my my sort of aim of trying to to come up with better better ways of doing things than we've had before mm-hmm. so that's something that we will continue to to chase after as mm. much as we can mm. and, and do they have a translational focus some of them might other ones mm. are I, mean, I think that everything we do is to try and understand more about viruses how and how they copy themselves and how, how they interact with host host and the thinking behind that is that everything that we learn every little bit of information there helps us to come up with a way to target them or make a drug that works against that particular aspect of it or is um, a, a new way of, of seeing that particular part. So I think everything we do is driven by a desire to have something concrete out of it that will eventually help us with all the challenges that the viruses and pandemics bring. Um, yeah. 
And, and has the experience of working through the pandemic changed your attitude to work in any way? Or are there things you'd like to see change in the, in the future? I, I suppose it, it, it's just been, it's been very busy in a, a period of really, really hard work, but it's not something that I you know, would have chosen not to do. So um, I don't think there's anything that I would change if it was to, you know, to happen again. Yeah. Good. Fantastic. Did that answer the question? Yeah, thank you. <laughs>